On a hot summer's day, 1827, James Lewis, a British soldier serving in the artillery of the East India Company Army, deserted with another soldier under the name of Charles Mason, and embarked on a series of travels across India. An avid coin collector and well-versed in the life of Alexander the Great, he would wind up traveling from site to site looking for the lost cities of Alexander, where he would end up at a site further than any western traveler had reached at this point, and saw in front of him ruins of an ancient city in the year of 1829. He noted down the city as one of Alexander's lost capitals, and just left. Not knowing he stumbled on a city that was older and more ancient than Alexander himself. The Indus civilization was in its own way as important as the Egyptian or the Mesopotamian. But in the 19th century BCE, they vanished from history, leaving no direct legacy behind. When Alexander the Great invaded India, he was not even aware of its own existence. Nor did the Arabs, the Mughals, or the Europeans who came to rule India. It wasn't until the 1920s when a group of archaeologists discovered at Harpa the remains of this lost civilization. Archaeologists have identified about a thousand settlements belonging to the Indus civilization in its various forms, covering a landmass of 8,000 kilometers squared. The settlements are segmented in villages, some towns, and five large cities. Two chief cities belonging to Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, located about 600 kilometers apart by the Indus River where it gets its name from. The cities are comparable to that of Memphis and Uar in Mesopotamia. The cities, despite their stable constructions, never boasted of pyramids, palaces, temples, or any elaborate tomb sites. No painting, no wealth, with only the grandest building being the Great Bath at Mohenjo-Daro. Yet the Indus Valley lived off the crops that was watered by the rivers, flowing through the Himalayas. They also developed merchant ships that had reached the Persian Gulf, the Indus were also famous for their sophisticated drainage and sanitation, beating the Romans by 2,000 years. Their drains ran beneath the cobbled arches and the world's first ever toilets. Archaeologists were also able to uncover some personal belongings such as necklaces. They had a binary system of standardized weights and language made of pictographic characters, making them one of the five original scripts, including the Egyptian, the Mesopotamian, the Mayan, and the Chinese. Yet the more we discover about the Indus Valley, the more questions we are left with. Jane McIntosh would write, A great clouds of unknowns hangs over the civilization. On today's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, we'll be looking at the lost civilization of the Indus Valley and how did the civilization emerge. Was it an indigenous development from neighboring uh, cities? Was it stimulated by the growth of Mesopotamia? What kind of system did they operate in, where there's no palaces, royal graves, temples, rulers, or priests? Why is there no evidence of warfare? Was there even a religion? Was it the precursor to Hinduism? And lastly, why did the Indus Valley decline after 1900 BCE? And why did it vanish from the historical records? Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. So, Aim, prior to choosing today's episode, I made a little poll on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to join in on these polls, please follow us on Instagram at a convo underscore BTWE. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. So the poll was consistent on what would be the topics for the next episode. 
because I was kind of stifled in what to choose to, to cover. And I decided instead of just making a poll and then making another one, I'll just take it on order. So what was the most voted for would be this week. What was the second would be the next time we record and so on and so okay, forth. Okay, that's clever. Nice. What one was Lost Civilization? No, it wasn't what I voted for. Uh, you voted for Conspiracy? Yep. <laughs> Uh, yeah so i think that will be the week or the next time we record mm-hmm. um in two weeks time cool cool so we'll start off with lost civilization because people care about lost civilizations uh, there's something conspiratorial about it or something i guess the, to the imagination right yeah true true of what's a lost civilization usually when we talk about lost civilizations it's usually talking within the themes of a conspiracy theory so like you have atlantis el dorado yeah true true Uh, you know these ancient cities that disappeared to time but they're only mentioned in like sacred text or whatnot yeah true true so yeah so i think that's why that's the reason why people kind of voted for lost civilization so yeah so today we'll be tackling a lost civilization when you think of lost civilizations like outside of atlantis what civilization comes to mind that's like i think we also kind of spoke about the sea people yeah the bronze age yeah which was something there well, it comes to mind, well, Atlantis, right? That's really the main lost civilization that everyone talks about. I think also that you have a lot of Latin American, yep. the Mayans. Definitely. The Even Aztecs. in Australia and, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, the Oceania areas, mm. there's a lot of now finding that there were people lived there. So there is a lot of in that area now. Like the Easter Islands, right? Yep. Yeah, where no one for the longest time we didn't, no one understood why the heads, the the statue of heads were there. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of these different civilizations and cultures that we don't know about. Also in Africa, you also have the Great Zimbabwe, yep. which is uh, it's the southern African uh, cities. It's interesting how a lot of civilizations get lost in places where, like archaeologists tend to ignore, like such as sub-Saharan Africa. Um, is it ignores or just there wasn't enough technology there at the time i think not enough technology but they i think it's also an assumption that these these places aren't quote-unquote civilized enough yeah to to have have some deep ancient civilization you know um and they're all near um some kind of natural disaster place or drought or yeah so you find next to the next to the sea or in places where a lot of famine can happen and droughts and all that have you ever heard of the Indus Valley Civilization? Never. No? Have you heard of the city of Mohenjo-Daro? It's possibly. Uh, they're Zensive? instead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's where I got them from. Um, okay. Okay, so the city is located. What's in? Okay, so the Indus Valley is kind of saturated between Pakistan and India. One of the first quote-unquote civilizations in the world. And yeah, and... What year are we talking about? We're talking about 3000 BCE. Damn. Yeah. That's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. Yeah. um, And they lasted for a long time too. They lasted till 1900 BCE. Yes. So like over, a bit over maybe 2000. That's a solid, stable civilization. Anyways, so let's get started. That's longer than America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe we'll find out how civilizations get lost in time. So I wanted to kick things off by explaining the geography of the region just so we could have an understanding of it, okay? So part one, I guess, the geography. So the region west of the Indus Valley are the highlands and plateau of the Bukistan area and alongside the Makran coast near the border of Iran. Okay, so that's... That's where it's situated. 
Okay. In the and also to the mountainous areas of northern Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And to the east, it's to the ancient river of. And I'm sorry if I'm going to butcher this name, but the Sarawasti River, which covers the area of Rajasthan and Punjab. So between the borders of Pakistan and India, you're talking about an area, like I said, of eight thousand square kilometers. That's the Indus Valley civilization. It was so spread out that civilization that it had so much minerals that was accessible to them. The climate of the area was also very beneficial for their agriculture. They had the winter cyclonic system from the western highlands and the summer monsoon, which aided in both providing rainfall. So I feel like that kind of spot is like not in the middle, but it's pretty prime like weather place. It's not as cold as places like Russia and all that. Yeah, exactly. And it gets wet enough. Uh, that it you will never get the ser- like true, drought. True, true, yeah. So if one area failed to be delivered by rainfall, the other one would be aided by it. So archaeological evidence suggests that the Indus people grew barley, wheat, oats, lentils, beans, mustards, and linen during the summer. And during the monsoon season, they grew cotton, sesame, me- melons, hemp, grapes, sorry, and dates. Uh, the diversity of the environment, the climate, and materials must have been vital to the civilization's prosperity. In ancient Egypt, for example, as you know, they really depended on the Nile to flood. Mm-hmm. That was the crucial driver for agriculture, right? Yep. But, of course, when it floods too much, it causes catastrophe. Uh, irrigation canals were necessary in Egypt to extend the reach of the flood and to store water. The Indus civilization, by contrast, there was no evidence of large-scale irrigation. Presumably, it's understood that if one poor, if one area had poor harvest, it would be rescued by the neighboring cities. Okay, so yeah. it was. So if one city, if one area was like on the east, so there's a proper communication system. Yeah, so it's within this area. So that de- definitely, it was governed by something that would know. Okay, we need to <laughs> then jump the gun on that. No. We'll be talking about the governing of okay, okay. the Indus Valley. So this leads us to the discovery of it. So mm-hmm. this area. So when Mason, like I mentioned uh, in the intro, when Charles Mason returned to Britain after discovering the Indus Valley, he published a book titled The Narrative of Various Journeys. What in, year was that? In 1842. The narration of various journeys in Balochistan, Afghanistan, and the Punjab, which got the attention of the British authorities in India, especially that of a person named Alexander Cunningham. An engineer with a passion for ancient history, he began to excavate the site Charles Mason was talking about. Okay, so he began to excavate the site that would later become Harappa in 1875. Tell tell your story. (laughs) And he would publish his findings, which was for the most part incomplete. And in 1904, a person by the name George John Marshall, Marshall, sorry, ordered the full excavation of the site upon hearing of another city which is which the locals referred to as Mohenjo-daro or as it would translate to English the mound of the dead due to the bones of animals and humans found there uh, so they started excavating Mohenjo-daro in 1924 and in 1925 and thus it began to prop up that there were similarities between the two cities that where that Mohenjo-daro looks a lot close to Harappa, which is 600, 600 kilometers away. The Indus civilization. In 1944, the Indus uh, archaeology uh, received another boost with the appointment of a person named Mortimer Wheeler as the, direct, the director general of the archaeological survey. Wheeler excavated both uh, Harappa and Mohenjo-daro during his first four terms. Sorry, just for some context. What was Charles Mason doing there again? Soldier. Like, who, who is he? He was a soldier for the East India Company, company that had its own army uh a future episode about the first multinational industry 
Okay. And he was stationed in India. Okay. And he decided to bounce. When he was bouncing, he took up the name Charles Mason. His name was James Palmer, I think, or something. And he's like, you know what? Uh, I just want to go sightseeing. So he wanted to go find the lost cities of Alexander. Where were we? Mortimer Wheeler as the director general of the archaeological survey, right? So he excavated the sites during his four-year term using more modern methods than Marshall. So based on natural cultural layers rather than Marshall's artificial levels, uh, with constant recording of something that they call the stratigraphy. Stratigraphy. Does that sound right? Or does Sounds perfect. Though recognized as one of the most important British archaeologists of the 21st century and responsible for successfully encouraging British public's interest in the discipline and advancing metho- methodology of excavation recording. Marshall, for the most part, even though he was a bit of a racist, we'll talk about that later, and kind of what we call a racialist, his excavations in Mahajandaro actually has revived the love of archaeology to the British public. Okay, so he was more important than, yeah, just. than just a racist archaeologist. Yeah. Furthermore, he is widely acclaimed as a major yeah, figure for the establishment of the South Asian archaeology field. However, many of his specific interpretations of archaeology has been discredited and reinterpreted. And often he would be later criticized for being a bully and for sexually harassing young women. So what did they discover? Part 3, Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro, and the cities that surround them. In the Hindu sacred texts known as the Vedas, they were widely known to Western scholars, okay? So, but back in the day, like the scholars or the British, uh, British Western scholars, sorry, they thought Hinduism was more adopted. The stories of the Veda were, had to be adopted from another civilization because systemic racism dictates that the people in India weren't smart enough to come up with these own stories on their own. So Hinduism to them was not, they, it can't come from this region. You know what I mean? It's too rich of a text to be by primitive people. The idea that like, if it's not white, it's not it's primitive. Yeah, yeah. You know, the same was also concluded to that of the city of Harappa. So by the time when it was discovered that there's this valley between the borders of Pakistan and India, and the civilization looks pretty advanced, they started attributing it to uh, the city to either the Sumerians, the Sumer- to the Sumerians or to the Egyptians outpost. Uh, they said that it must be like some outpost for both civilizations. Oh, so there's no way there was another civilization yeah. then at the same time. Especially from the Southern Asian region, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, the problem though was... Egypt at that time was, was the West. Yeah. Uh, the problem though with that thinking is that it was becoming like more clear how the city architecture started to look like. It didn't conform with what, how the cities in Egypt. Mesopotamia or in Egypt look like. So they clearly did, it can't be from the same... like architectural school of thought you know yeah uh, so why is it also be some kind of like statue it'd also be some kind of like ancient egyptian statue lying around or something like that if it was a sub colony or something or like some temple to some ancient yeah. pharaoh anyway so first and foremost what was the main difference between the architecture of that city compared to say the egyptian and the mesopotamian First of all, there was no sense of hierarchy in these cities. I'm looking up the, how the city looked. So, for example, it's not like in a capital city where you could see this, the quote-unquote class structure or the class hierarchy. So it was Harappa, Mahajandara, and then there were three other major cities. Each one yielded walls and gateways. And, of course, there was the Great Bath in Mahajandara, right? Which is like the, the hot spot of the okay. city. Some of the settlements were built on something called anti-flood platforms, so they were slightly raised from the ground. They were constructed all by mud brick, which required vast numbers of laborers. And the strange thing is that they have yet to discover brick-making sites in the city. Just to give some context, I quickly Google the thing. They also said it was more of a valley kind of place, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in the valley, yeah, yeah, yeah the Indus so, Valley. So it was like... Uh, 
kind of like how uh, you know the flashbacks of how the Imhotep and the mummy. Mm-hmm. That's how it kind of looks. Oh, okay. But without the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics or anything. Yeah, yeah, I get. But that's how it kind of looks like. You know how people interpret ancient Egypt back in the day. Yeah, how it yeah. That's how the just to get people visually because when people think of that area, they'll think mountains or green, like monsoonish weather. But it was still pretty deserty with a lot of water. It's a mix of so many, like there's a mix of forests, deserts. It looked like you know how back in the day they said ancient Egypt was like filled with greens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. still a desert. Yeah, like and it's desert outskirts inwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how it seems to be. Yeah. So the strange thing is, like we said, there was no brick making sites in the city. So you had cities built from brick, yet there's no place to make bricks in the city. Uh, it seems like something from above dropped. <laughs> the streets are laid out in grid pattern too mm. so there's a grid grid uh, platform for the cities demonstrating high skill of urban planning and that uh, the people knew what they were doing you know what i mean like this is a pre-planned city it was like designed designed like this there's evidence of ceramic manufacturing silver and gold were were working too but there's no clear evidence if there was anything that resembles shops or marketplaces and most puzzling, of course, is the absence of a palace or a temple. Um, so you'd assume that these places... Uh, There'd be one big mansion. Or like you. there'll be a ruler who existed, you know? Mm. And that if, say, if there's a ruler who existed, he realistically would put himself in a bigger house. Or on a, on a house that's higher, on, like on the mountaintop. Or far, you know? far away from everyone, yeah. Yeah, so far, none of, the, none of these houses exist. All the houses look exactly the same. Has it been just maybe and... This is what fascinates me about archaeology. There's still so much more to discover. That's one thing, yeah. Like they haven't got the funding to go deeper. It's maybe... Like until now in Egypt, we still find... More stuff. Yeah. But with Egypt, you you kind of still get some sort of hierarchy. But with this, so far, none of the cities proved a palace. Mm -mm. So first of all, if no cities proves the Kazakhs and palace, sorry, then you have two things. You're like, is this the capital city? Yeah, true. One, two... If it is the capital city, then who was ruling it? Who made those decisions? Exactly. Yeah. Mohenjo-daro is considered usually the, the hub because of the great bath. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but um, you'd assume, but so far they haven't found. And as for religious worship, like, I mean, there's no shortage of evidence that may be religious imagery. So there's like seals on some, so like some items would have a seals that would have like some sort of animal. Of course, they would be interpreted as some kind of something religious, right? An animal seal? Like no, no, like on a on a seal. I thought like no. the seal. No, no, like on a seal. Would, <laughs> yeah, like, what's the seal doing there? They would incri- inscribe on seals because it, you wouldn't surprise be surprised that like they worship some kind of random creature. Yeah, yeah, like some buffalo or like some yeah buffaloes. Uh, there's like seals of buffaloes, seals of uh, elephants, turtles. I don't know about turtles. Owls. I don't know about owls. I think owls is not indigenous. Either. Dragons. No, surprisingly, no reptiles. There's not even snakes, which is weird yeah, because I think they would be there. Yeah, because Hinduism. A Komodo dragon, snakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, so but what they found was a figure, a figurine that's about 18 centimeters of some kind of priest king. Okay. So. Yeah, but that's what they interpret. They, you know, and there's a famous joke in archaeology that if you don't know what something is, it must be ritual. Mm, you know what I true, mean? True, true. Could be. I'm, I'm looking this up too. Another one that's interesting is, of course, the Great Bath, right? Which the archaeologists have attributed that it was some kind of religious ceremony or some kind of purifying ritual, you know? Mm-hmm. Which would make sense if they're trying to relate it to how the Hindus, the Hindus' ritual of cleansing in the 
water of Mother Ganges, yeah. but it's highly debated if it's a place of worship or not. So this is what their assumption, like this big ass building in the middle of the square must be something of worship or just a normal bathhouse. People just go take baths there. You never know. So the Great Bath is a part of a very elaborate network of drainage channels. So houses in both the cities of Harappa and Mahajandaro had flush toilets. A sewer system and fixtures on the streets that were part of a drainage system that would take out the waste into the desert. On top of that, Mahajandaro had wells that were 10 to 15 meters deep. And there were about 700 water wells. Wow. Um, so they worked. They worked. And it was both... And it's a, don't forget, like, it's a long, it's like a long timeline. Yeah. They had time to work. Yeah, so you had the 10, 15 meter water wells, and they found water wells in public areas and also inside people's houses. So proper... So it's a proper, like, well... Um, sewage system. Yeah. Find um, turtles there. <laughs> that's their origins. The water would be raised from the well using ropes and uh, by ropes... And the water would usually come out in a, either a leather or a wooden bucket. Okay, Harappa, on the other hand, was not located too far from the Ravi River. So the amount of wells were down to 30 wells because mm-hmm. they have the river next to them, you know. Yeah. And there's also a large depression found in the middle of the city. So people assume it could have been made into a, like a man-made reservoir. Mm-hmm. Artificial drainage was not only the unique thing in bigger villages, uh, in bigger cities, but also the villages. Even small villages had their own draining system. Small, the smallest drains constructed of burnt brick channeled fluently from the, the bathing platforms and toilets of private houses to medium-sized open drains in the side of streets, which would in turn be connected to larger brick or stone-covered drains and sewers in the main streets supplied by manholes or manhole covers. Mm-hmm. So they would be able to be cleared if necessary. Interesting. You see, and imagine this was done 3000 BCE. So intricate. So intricate. Not to, not Dude, to this say- This is like 5,000 plus years, years ago. ago. And they have like drainage system to take out the waste. There are some countries, okay, that have built huge ass towers who don't have a drainage system. Until now. Yeah. Until now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who trucks have to come to take out the shit at the end of the day. Yeah. So just this is something that's been done from 5,000 years ago. So simple. So simple. Um, or so complex. Like, I mean, who thought it through, you know? True. Yeah, you're right. Um, th- so it would eventually, they would finally exit through the city wall and spewing the sewage and the, sp- and the rainwater into the plains. Uh, this exit point, there might have been a wooden gate that would open and close to let it out so it would forbid improve or prevent intruders from walk from getting in from the under mm-hmm. uh, at harappa they found drains that are a corbelled arc of 1.6 meters high and 60 centimeters wide and 6.5 meters in length extending beneath the city between the city and beneath the city street sorry there are however no true arcs that are known in mesopotamian egypt so people are saying tell if these arcs exist there and they don't exist there then how can you say this is an outpost for mesopotamia if they don't even have the the drainage systems you know um they seem quite almost more advanced than them at times exactly so to marshal this absence of a true arc or drainage system helped to demonstrate that there was no really no real close connection between sumer and in this valley so as other sites were being unearthed the same degree of sophistication and skill came to light as well and it comes clear that like these cities have been all pre-planned all the cities had the same structure. There was no, even like a village would be a mini size of the city, mm, you know? So some architecture thing. Yeah. Unlike those cultures, which usually developed from smaller communities. To As ru- they go, yeah. Yeah, to ruler. The cities of Indus Valley have been thought to be, this place is picked. 
And it's like, okay, we'll build here. Unlike being like a village that will turn to a city that will turn it's to... It's like a, a, you send your settler there yeah, to build. You're like, okay, I want you to. I want to build a city here. I want to build a city here. I want to build a city there. It's not like an organic growth of... No, no, it's not. So yeah, so it shows that these cities were chosen. <laughs> <laughs> these cities were chosen because of the materials that were surrounding them, you know? So it's like we'll build here because we have these materials around. Like in Civ, when you build, because you know there's a stone quarry next to you. As others, it's like it's like they send someone. They're like, okay, the tools here can be useful, so let's build here. Maybe, yeah. It's again like, how do they choose these cities? It's a, it's a whole different conundrum. Further, all they all exhibited a conformity to a single vision, which we, with further suggested that there was suggested that there was a central government with an efficient bureaucracy that they could plan, fund, and build such cities. Okay. John Key would comment, as other sites were unearthed, the same degree of sophistication and skill came to light as well as the understanding of all these cities have been pre-planned. Unlike those other cultures which usually developed from smaller rural communities, the cities of this valley had been thought out, a site chosen and purposefully constructed prior to full habitation. Further, they all exhibited conformity to a single vision. Vision 2030. Mm. So on top of that, Wheeler's, uh, Wheeler would also provide and approximate dates on how the civilization, this foundation of the civilization, so we have an understanding on how the chronology works. And it goes as follows, okay? Then we have the pre-Harpan period, which is from 7,000 to 5,500 5, uh, BCE. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, it was the Neolithic period, best exemplified by the sites in the city called Mahgar, I think. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Shows evidence of agricultural development, domestication of plants and animals, and productions of tools and ceramics. Mm-hmm. Okay? Then we have the early Harpen period, which is from 5,500 5, uh, BCE to 2,800 BCE. This is where trade is firmly established with Egypt, Mesopotamia, and possibly China. Ports, docks, and warehouses were built near waterways by communities living in small villages. Okay? Mm-hmm. Then you have what we call the mature period, which is from the 2800 BCE to the 1900 BCE. This okay. is the construction of the great cities, widespread urbanization, Harappa and Mahendra. This is when they went to their next era. Yeah. Harappa and both flourished, uh, both flourishing around 2600 BCE. That's okay. when these cities were built. Other cities, around the area that are built according to the same models start developing soon after, with including the construction of 100 other cities until there were over 1,000 among them. in every 1,000 small cities in the land, wow. in every direction. Proper, proper, proper civilization. I thought it was tinier when, no, when you no. first were talking about it. And then you have the late Harpa, Harappan period, or the late period, is from 1900 to 1500 BCE, and this is the decline of the civilization, which coincides with a wave of migration of the Aryan people from the north. More on that later. Uh, most likely from the Iranian plateau. Uh, physical evidence suggests also there could have been climate change, flooding, drought, famine. Mm-hmm. The, but what's big on this period is that there's a loss of trade relations between Egypt, Mesopotamia, and them. So that even further disproves that they were a sub colony of those people. Yeah. And then you have what we call the post period. which uh, So you have 1500... BCE to 600 BCE, the cities were abandoned and the people were moved south and the civilization had fallen by the time that Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great invaded India. So this is the timeline we have and this is the timeline we're going to be working with while we explain the civilization. Another important announcement from Brill Cream. Men, beware. Use one dab of Brill Cream. Just a little dab makes your hair look excitingly clean. 
Disturbingly healthy. This man dared to use two dabs. Now he's in trouble. We refuse to be responsible. So part four. What was the culture like? What was the aspects of the culture? The art in and around in this valley is a bit of a mystery. Like we said, the, like there was no wall paintings, no ornaments on buildings, no high huge statues compared to those of Egypt and Mesopotamia. The most celebrated of any kind of art, like we said, was a statue of an 18 centimeter tall priest king. And there's a lot of mini statues there, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was I googled it, yeah. And um, no, like people. Yeah, yeah. They're, but they were never too big or never it wasn't, too. It wasn't even like glorious or ambient or yeah. uh, uh, experimental art. No. It was just like. Uh, just a statue. Yeah. Uh, there are some stone beads as well, like some necklaces, which was found all the way in Mesopotamia. Necklaces and the beads were produced from semi-precious stones, such as gold, silver, copper, shell, ivory, terracotta. Surprisingly, um, uh, turquoise was also used and, vi- and highly valued, mm-hmm. uh, trading at this point, uh, at this part of, of South Asia. But they weren't stable like, to the Indus people. They just made beads and then they transported it out. Most of the Indus tools were made of were made of stone, and some of them were made of metals such as copper and bronze. And there are signs of copper that came from Oman. Interesting. Yeah, so they were trading that far, like into Oman. Uh, the Indus technology appeared to have been invented by craftsmen working at or around the city of Mahgra before the mature period of the civilization. So they had like a, yeah, they had like a city that was dedicated to craftsmen. Production. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the Indus, uh, the Indus Civ also had some unique, uh, had something unique in the ancient world. They had some, they had a weight system, uh, and this was unto itself. Like so, it didn't correspond with other weight systems. It was their own weight measurements, and it was used in all the cities in the Indus Valley. These weights were found in recent excavations, and they are both used for controlling trade and possibly for collecting taxes. Interesting. Yeah, so this is how they would measure the money. worth, yeah. They also found uh, beads that have been interpreted like as some sort of uh, status symbol, maybe bangles too, uh, which still persisted in Southeast, uh, South Asia, Middle East, mm-hmm. the wearing of bangles on your hand. Uh, but it could have had some super, more supernatural element. Again, we don't really know. Most of it ranged from clay to hammered gold, white shell, and bronze. Pottery was also found, and they were all they were both plain and painted on with stones, other materials. There were three types: like there were animal and human figurines, there were masks, there were toys made from something like a toy cart to a small like boat. That further highlights their sophistication. Yeah. Yeah. Comfort as well. They had they had time to make toys. And exactly. And not a lot of figurines, not a lot of statues, only like the ones you mentioned, the female and the male very figurines. Very practical society. People assumed that they could have been fertility figurines because they were naked, but they were presumably made by potters for worshippers or for domestic rituals used under like in the houses or in the courtyards. There's even talk about them being action figures. Interesting. Yeah, that yeah, could like be it. Some kind Just of, naked toys. Yeah, some kind of action figure. No, it explains if they have many carts and many boats. Yeah, exactly. Many to ride the carts and boats. <laughs> yeah, so like some weird action man. From what it looks like, it's like... Uh, but they have like elongated hands, yeah, arms. So, or no arms at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the elongated stuff. It looks, yeah. It looks a it, bit... It looks like... Uh, what's that thing? Can't remember. But it's like uh, African, uh, African art is sometimes like that too. You see it in African art. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking Yeah, I know exactly what comes to mind. Yeah, yeah human figurines and like... 
Disproportionate body like this one I'm looking at, it looks like a plus size person uh, sitting on like a chair. Yeah, yeah it could so. be like, it looks like a, like a mother figure maybe. Yeah, almost. Yeah, or like an older lady. Precur- precursor to like some divine goddess. Yep, might have just been doing for each other's families. Maybe. Like here, like, I just so crafted I, something for like, you. Yeah, here's a gift I did you. I you did know? your grandmother. Or I did you, mom. Here you go. Right? Yeah, did yeah. You? Could it, To be honest, yeah. it could it be. It doesn't have to be anything too... But like I said, archaeologists like to tell if they can't figure something out, they're like, oh, it must be religion. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm looking at here, it looks like just like a family, mm. but just not that detailed. Slightly with their face. An abstract of a family. Just the best they could with the long hair. It looks like the, that Gromit cartoon. Yeah, claymation. Yeah, yeah, very claymation, yeah. So also they found uh, large square unicorn seals. Mm-hmm. Perforated boss with back. The unicorn, <laughs> the unicorn is the most common motif <laughs> on the end of seals. Do you want to explain what you just showed me? <laughs> and it appears no. to represent a mythical animal that Greek and Roman sources trace back to the Indian subcontinent. So there's also they found images of what looks like a unicorn, a horse with a or like a, some kind of bull with a horn. Could be a rhinoceros. I don't think so. Rhinoceros are not really common in that area. I think. Um, but the Greeks and Romans would tend to say that unicorns came from the Indian subcontinent. So ah, it could be from them. On top of that, they found that it looks like a form of zebra with a with a horn. Right. Look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been a creature at that time that just got extinct with time. Yeah. I mean, that's the theory, right? Well, I don't think that unicorns like magical know. powers, but yeah, just like some kind of zebra would think or. It's like a zebra and they put something on its head. And an- maybe it's a zebra with an antler. Antlers, maybe it's an animal with antlers. antlers. Yeah. It looks like antlers in this one, huh? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. But because it's one side, it's drawn from like and a there two- is clearly... Um, and because it's 2D... There's you can- a la- there is language in this one. That's the thing, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about the yeah. in this language. Okay. The thing you is... You guys should Google that, whoever's listening. Should definitely Google everything we're Googling. It's very because it's crazy, one. right? Yeah, this looks like a horse hybrid kind of thing. I see why they think it's a pony. Look, but... Because the front, like, is it something they're just putting armor on it? Or is it, like, a stripes? But don't forget, these things are 2D, right? So for all you know, they could be one horn. And there's another horn on the other side. Yeah, but I'm talking about even the front. Like, it's almost like they dressed it in something. Yeah, yeah, like around, like, maybe, like, bees around its yeah, neck. Yeah, exactly, right? They look like they've been dressed... Guys, you should really look and up... their body is really elongated. You should really look up these uh, images. They're actually yeah. pretty cool. Especially yeah, if it's... Yeah, it's like a horse, but a cow. Yeah, so... so got carried away with it. The, you, like, if you look at the seals you're looking at, mm-hmm. in front of the unicorn, there's usually some weird-ass ritual offering stand or droplets of water or, sac- or a bowl. I don't know if you see yeah, that. Yeah, I see it. So people think this is something religious has to do with water sacrifice or something. Or it could be just them. Or it could just water. be a horse drinking water with antlers yes. on. <laughs> but yeah, yeah but, but even by the the bulls had gear on. I think they had gear on at the front. Mm, mm. Cuz even the bulls like have It's very interesting, yeah. right? So they probably dressed it in something, yeah. So the Indus seals also provides clues for the type of agriculture that was happening in the in the, in the civilization. Mm-hmm. Chiefly, there was like the range, like we said, the animal motifs. Mm-hmm. Some of them came off like are ambiguous. Some of them are plain myth- mythical in nature. For example, like their their skin their skins would look different or like elongated and whatnot. So yeah. it gives a bit of a mythic proportion to these animals. True. The excavated animals and bones also remain. So we have a carbon, like such as carbonized grain. We know that they they had grain. So we also know that there's like evidence of other species that live there, such as the 
the humped bull or the non-humped bull, the water buffalo, the Indian bison, the Indian rhinoceros, or the the tiger, Mm -hmm. uh, the Asian elephant, and the fish-eating crocodile. Interesting. Yeah. These were the animals in and around the pe- in and around the period, not included in the seal motifs, but depicted in other arts are bears, dogs, monkeys, parrots, peacocks, pigs, rams, squirrels, and some birds too. In Majdaro, there was pottery that was found to have uh, pellets of a peacock. You know, interesting. A uh, creature like plainly painted on pottery as well. That place was a hub of animals, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also one. There's also the puzzling one-horned animal that we kept talking about, you know, which people think is the unicorn. Um, it, the creatures, oh, like I said, the creature has been associated with India uh, by ancient Greek writers, all dating all the way back to when India was uh, when the Greeks made their way to India. Uh, dogs were also a part of the Indus uh, households, judging from their occurrence and from their bones and from dogs' imagery. A lot of dogs were unearthed in the houses belonging, like inside oh, houses. So this led to geologists to conclude that the remains of those, uh, of the ones that are domesticated or semi-domesticated dogs, were common to present day. Uh, so they had them as pets almost. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was domesticated dogs that were pets and semi-domesticated dogs too. So like wild dogs, they most likely fed around. You know that communal guard, probably guard dogs too and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. Uh, trade in the Indus Valley was very widely uh, was very widely known at the time too. Uh, goods were usually transported to the cities or to the neighboring lands by road and sea. Items were moved by carts that were carried by bulls. Indian trade uh, Indian Indus trade networks would carry the product to places far from its sources. So, for example, they would take marine fish from the south coast of the Gujarat area, and they would go all the way to Harappa. So it would be like. You know what I mean? So people would send carts all the way there just to pick up fish and go all the way back. Yeah. From the north, items would be transported from the north to the south, from the east to the west. And of course, in Mesopotamia, they found items uh, uh, that they would trade with, such as shells, turquoise, and they would be trading with copper and whatnot, like we said. Um, so it's also believed that there's incur- like several sources in that there was like a strong network that was able to develop and expand and stimulate the economy. But it's also difficult to contemplate the challenges and discomforts these anonymous traces would have faced four or 5,000 years ago as they voyaged across major rivers, mountains, like to trade, you know what I mean? Yeah, so they had a transportation They had system. transportation, but it's hard to imagine like how Tough it, could, it, was, it was hard to be, you know what I mean? Like to go transport it above like, especially hills in... Afghanistan and Pakistan, where yeah. it's very mountainous. It could go very mountainous, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, so what they think is that there must have been like some people who were just focused on going to get stuff for the city and come back. Just traders. Just be traders for the city. Um, other people were most likely just farmers looking like working the field, looking after animal, cutting down wood for cooking and construction. Uh, they probably witnessed long distance travelers returning to this to distant towns or embarking on journeys. You know what I mean? Um, but there's no evidence of coinage. You know what I mean? Huh. Uh, there's not a lot of marketplaces as well for them to like just meet and sell. Yeah. 
Um, so people think they okay, they got these items, but they weren't selling it. We're just trading. Maybe they brought it back to the city to be used by the city. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe people gather and be like, I'll give you this bead and you get me something. For like that. some barter? Yeah. Maybe. Pure yeah. barter system, yeah. Uh, there, was an abs- there was an absence of an agreed decipherment of like the... So like what's the problem is with the indescript is that it's not deciphered yet and it, they don't know how to decipher it. So we don't know anything about how they use, what they use for currency or how they trade it. Mm, they're still trying to understand uh, it. Unlike, yeah, unlike the samurai script where like the axe in Sumer tends to mean money mm-hmm. so if you see an axe that means okay this is a sale this is a sales bill or whatever like we know they used weights for trade but what did they use this comparison to no one knows since there was no coins mm-hmm. part five communist utopia question mark no no <laughs> there we go Kineo's relishing at this no it's just that this is a big theory by the way is this a proto-communist state Interesting. With no, it's like clearly there was no one ruling leader because there was no major house and all that stuff. Exactly. And, so was it like an egalitarian? And everything was done for the better of the city and all that stuff and communally. So, but they traded. So was it an egalitarian state that just ran for like what's for the best of the city? It seems to be the case where it's just like not necessarily any religion or anything or any certain ruler. It's just for the community and just. Literally, the city seems to run on uh, keeping the city moving. Yeah, yeah, for the benefit. Yeah. Um, so what makes the Indus Valley unique and very baffling compared to other societies at the time is how different they are from the rest. Like we mentioned, no burial sites that resembles anything lavish, uh, no pyramids, no big tombs, no palaces, um, no weapons, no human sacrifices, no animal sacrifices, no servants accompanying the masters in, in tombs, no royal figures, no great leaders, no crowns, nothing of gold, like too much status. There was no, and there was no sign of violence or war at that time. That's interesting. Uh, Could it be just too soon? No one's really investigating? Perhaps. Uh, where you had in Sargon, in Sargon uh, of Akkad and the warfare between the cities of Mesopotamia and him conquering from one land to create the empire or how in Egypt there was like small kings who all fought each other to become the leader of the ancient Egyptian kingdom you don't see signs of this with the Indus Valley yeah. there's no there's no sign that one city took over another city and imposed its culture so it just kind of withered away the Indus Valley seems it was abandoned it seems yeah the Indus Valley seems like it was born and managed without any kind of court or military arms or temples there's no sign that certain people ate differently from other people like when they even like looked at the diet habits of the people passed away it didn't seem like anyone was eating anything different from the other person but it'd be interesting um, why didn't miss it Mesopotamia and Egypt attack it and try to take over. You think it's too far? Or maybe they didn't have the ambition to go there? They clearly traded and they knew of it. But they didn't want to... Or why, why didn't the East... China was the, was the like, king back then. For civilization to be around for so long. Yet no war. Not one person tried to attack it. Is this because your judgment is that like we only study war, th- war things in history? So you're just assuming it has to always be war? Yeah. Maybe can can there be just a peaceful time where these civilizations just become Could, like isolationists? Very well, but there's even in Egypt where you have a lot of like fighting. One hundred percent. Egypt was fighting too much with uh, Assyrians up north. Yeah, exactly. And there's the Persian Empire and that and that. And there was the no, Sea Peoples. And there was not one. <laughs> you know, are they the Sea People? 
Are they the sea peoples? <laughs> um, not one attempted attack. No text to show that buildings were damaged from a war. Again, we don't. We don't have the. We ca- we haven't deciphered the script to know Maybe. what would happen. But so far, from what we Unless see, they have a very cool defense system that we don't know. <laughs> Star Wars from satellites. Yeah. Hmm, or maybe they were protected by, you know. Uh, Sir John Marshall wrote in his book Mahajandaro and the Indus Valley Civilization, 1931. Thus, to mention only a few salient points. The use of cotton textiles was exclusively restricted at this period to India and was not extended to the Western world until 2,000 or 3,000 years later. Again, there is nothing that we know of, of in prehistoric Egypt or Mesopotamia or anywhere else in Western Asia to compare with the well-built baths and houses of the citizens of Mohenjo-Daro. In these countries, much money and thought were lavished on buildings of magnificent temples for gods or on tombs and palaces of the kings. But the rest of the people seemingly to have content themselves with insignificant dwellings of mud. In the Indus Valley civilization, the picture is reversed. The finest structures are those erected for the convenience of all its citizens. Interesting. So this is situ- like getting a hard down. <laughs> so this situation has led to a great deal of informed guesswork by scholars, right? People disagree. They say there has to be some kind of rule, governing body or council. They can't just be like a citizen-run state, you know? Not even any history of battle for the place. No. Like fighting over the land and uh, an uprising and all that stuff, huh? Yeah, so this guy called Neil McGregor. Uh, I heard of him, UFC guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> former director of the British Museum in London and former UFC champion, of course. Double champ. Yeah, double champ. Your wife is in me DMs, hey baby! <laughs> he wrote, what's left of these great... <laughs> I'm just imagining Conor McGregor writing about the Indus Valley. Yeah, that's what he did in his time <laughs> Like off. in his time off. What's left of these great Indus cities gives us no indication of a society engaged or threatened by war. That's what he wrote. Are you Googling this? Because you can't buy it, huh? You can't wrap your head around it. Mm. A city that hasn't been into war? <laughs> Sounds simple. Utopian. Mm. So yeah, so that's what he wrote. What's left of these great Indus cities gives us no indication of a society engaged with war. The Indus people, he argues, offer a a novel model of an urban civilization without celebration of violence or extreme concentration of individual power. He says, okay, are you ready for this aim? Because this is to you. Is it going too far to see these Indus citizens as an early urban utopia? Yeah, there's no... Evidence of sacking or burning. The Harapin were a peace-loving people, not given to war or aggression. Most large societies also lean on centralized governments, you know, we all know this, to enforce rule of law, right? I mean, the only things you could pick and save when you get to this era is what? Autocrat, oligarch, yeah, right? And I think it's a theocrat, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, yeah, so this is the idea. That you need a centralized government that runs the... But rule of law, right? Yet, the only in this sculpture we have that could be conceived of maybe a leader is the priest king. Mm-hmm. But then again, is he a priest king or is he just a dude who has a cloak on the left side of his shoulder? So most people try to see that as like, oh, it's like how, you know, Buddhist or Hindus, Hindu monks or priests have a cloth on the side of their shoulder. So they must think that this is that. So I'm trying to see the picture itself. So I can right, the Indus priest king. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Uh, his identity is, in fact, totally obscure, and we know nothing beside what people could guess. 
And they're just using what we know. Uh, is it that guy with the beard? Yep. He looks like a... Does he have a missing arm? Maybe it broke off, I think. The problem with the Indus Valley, Amen, is that we can't reconstruct a day in the life of an Indus Valley citizen because we are unable to decipher the written script, which means that there's a lot of guesswork on how the politics and faith of the region played out, if any existed. So we are left with the question, what was the ruling power, right? Or was it a proto-communist state with their own, from each to his own ability, to each according to his own need? Yeah. What do we, so what can we say now? So the Indus Valley script, the language, right? Yeah. Maybe just, rep- sorry, I'm just looking at the picture real quick. He also has that he- headband, right? Yeah. Uh, perhaps this is what they were like. Old people look like, maybe. This is, yeah, like the model Hindus guy should look like this. For all we know, it could be like a, gu- a guy did his father a favor and made him a present. And this, and this huge present. It's really well made. Yeah, it's 18 centimeters tall. That's really cool. Anyways, Amen. Mm-hmm. So what we're left with is the Indus Valley script. Now, how do we know most about a civilization? From deciphering their writing, we get to understand the civilization, right? You write it down, we and get to know it. Yep. The problem is the Indus Valley script has ironically been deciphered, has been the most deciphered script in the world, yet it hasn't been deciphered at all. Uh, everyone okay. and their mother claims to have broken the code to deciphering the script. And does each one have a different theory? It has a different theory that don't correspond with the other. The first claim was in 1925. And since from 1925 till now, there has been over 100 claims made that they have deciphered the script. Assuming that the Indus script is a full writing system, several scholars have drawn comparison to the Mayan decipherment. Because if you know, the Mayan script was deciphered in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So there's hope that said, oh, if the Mayans were able to be deciphered in the 50s, maybe we, we could decipher. Could do, yeah. The problem is that the Mayan script, unlike the Indus script, was able to be deciphered because the Mayan mathematics and calendars were well understood before the, the linguistic breakthrough of breaking down the Mayan language. So they were able to look for Mayan numbers and then work their way from that to what they... The language, yeah, yeah, to language. And plus, on top of that, uh, the Spanish uh, conquest or the Spanish invasion... Interacted with. Yeah, so there's still things that we might know. Even with Egypt or Mesopotamia, there's because been a lot of cross... Greek, a Roman. So there's yeah. a lot... Like the Rosetta Stone. Yeah. The only reason we know the Rosetta Stone because they correlated the Greek with the hieroglyphs, right? Yeah. So some some researchers have sought to establish a relationship between the Indus script and the Brahmi language, or like which would become the Hindu. That's uh, the closest thing you can yeah. say. Because even the priest king kind of looks... Uh, like a Hindu yeah, priest. Yeah, they're doing face comparisons. Yeah. yeah. Others have compared the Indus script to contemporary pictographic scripts in Mesopotamia. They tried to use maybe Mesopotamian script and, or Samaritan script, and they're like... Uh, maybe you could use that to decipher it. Some people have tried to use the Iranian plateau. Cause, but these guys traded with other cultures. There must have been a communication way. They're still looking. However... Like there must have been some translation on the way. So, however, researchers now generally agree that the Indus script is not closely related to any other writing system of the 2nd and 3rd millennia BCE. Although some conversions and diffusions of a proto- Elamite conceivably may be found. A definite relationship between the Indus script and other scripts remain unproven. Part 5. Decline and the Fall. Let's do something new. What would you think caused the fall of this civilization? Sorry, a quick question. Let's go back a bit. The Pashupati seal. Mm -hmm. I just looked it up. 
has drawings of animals surrounded by someone sitting on a chair with some kind of headgear. Some kind of headgear. Oh, is this the one that's considered like the pro, uh, the proto Vishnu? I don't know, but like, um, that's clearly some, that looks religious. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. So there is something there that indicates some kind of worship. Because that person looks like he's sitting with his leg folded, he or she. In the lotus position. Yes, with some badass headgear. <laughs> surrounded by animals with writing written on top and animals under him too, or her. Maybe this guy was like a butcher. This is like his store, he, storefront. Yeah, he can. <laughs> it could be that his thing, we don't see waste below. No, but there's no weapons or anything. And the hands are snake-like. Is it? Look at the hands. It is spread out. And, and, he, and on top of him looks like horns. Yeah, he's wearing horns. But look at the hands. There's no, like the arms. It's, guys, it's very slithery. We're going to put pictures of this on Instagram for sure so you guys can go through it. Um, but there are definitely acts, what seems like acts under him. I do see that. But the, could it be like act, like for co- uh, crops? Uh, but it's really cool because. Like, like an that's old fashioned. That's not normal hands. That's very like snake like hands so do you use this as our cover for the artwork it's like reptilian shit oh no oh no. and it looks like it has three faces mm. look three faces i'm worried to go with this no no but look mm. doesn't look like he has a side nose as well is his face facing there or is his face facing exactly there? <laughs> sorry i was pointing left or right <laughs> man that's a cool piece of art anyways aim so the question how do you think the civilization declined or how did it fall? Something like that. It must be the environment. So you're going to go with like the climate? It has to be weather. It has to be. Because I think... If something like that's so stark, it has to be the weather. <laughs> if you guys were paying attention to our Bronze Age episode, and I guess also we covered it during the hunts, right? We talked about how environment could affect a civilization. Yeah. But usually for the Indus Valley, since we don't really have a definitive uh, understanding, again, like we used Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs to explain what happened, uh, uh, Mesopotamian texts to explain how they fell, and so on and so forth, right? The problem with the Indus Valley is that because we can't decipher their script, we are kind of left with a lot of guesswork and working around the script itself. So it's usually hard to explain the decline and fall of a civilization. It seems that humans have a need to assume that's always caused by human agency, a la sea people. So like for the longest time, it was the sea people that brought down the Bronze Age because like we only assume that humans can, can alter okay. the fates of humans. Then we just saw something like a volcano can ruin something, like an yeah. earthquake or whatever. So the theories tend to range from external invasions to internal rebellions. Uh, I mean, look no further to the fall of Rome. What country has not been blamed for the fall of Rome but, or what but, people? According to this, there's been no exactly. physical damage to show. But unlike Rome, no one really knows how the sculpture declined. Because even the buildings, but even if it was a natural disaster, it wasn't a flood. It wasn't something that washed everything or away. destroyed. Yeah, it was starvation. It was something gradual. It's like, we need to get out of here. So Unless they felt a threat coming and they didn't have the weapons prepared. So And they left preemptively preemptively before the threat arrived they're like let's move as a unit you know they're just so they're that organized they're like dude we have no weapons we never thought of war (laughs) but everyone's fighting let's leave what is the thing they're throwing at us like before they even come let's not risk the lives of everyone maybe but what we know though is that from 1900 to 1500 bce people started abandoning their cities and started moving south into india in case of the indus valley many regions have emerged let's start with so if they're moving south and the problem came more towards the northwest 
theory number one Aryans from the northwest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, good segue. Mm-hmm. For the majority of scholars, the Indus Valley civilization seemed to cease to exist due to an Aryan invasion. And this was due to interpreting a Vedic le- literature uh, from the subcontinent where they talked about being conquered by a light skinned race. So this theory developed slowly and at first innocently through the publications of a work by an Anglo-Welsh person named Sir William Jones. In 1786, Jones, an avid reader of Sanskrit, noted that there were remarkable similarities between it and European languages. That the common source had uh, there has to be a common source for them all that he called the Proto-Indo-European. Later scholars would try to identify Jones' common source, concluding a light-skinned race from the north, somewhere around Europe, must have conquered the lands of the south from Persia, notably into India, establishing culture and spreading the language and customs from Europe. Yeah, racism, huh? Even though nothing objectively supported this view, people still believed in it. A French elitist writer, Joseph Arthur de Gobineau, popularized this view uh, in his work, so his essay was called An Essay on the Inequality of the Human Races, which was published in 1855, okay. and asserted that the superior light-skinned race had Aryan blood and were naturally disposed to rule over lesser races. Wow. Of course, such theories eventually led to some people taking it to heart and believe that they were the superior race. Of course. One notable feller is named Alfred Rosenberg. <laughs> <laughs> The most famous Aryan out <laughs> the there. Same, the, the most famous yeah. promoter promote well, of the Aryan race, <laughs> Alfred, yeah. Alfred Rosenberg from 1893 yeah. to 1946. I can't think of anyone else. <laughs> yeah, so that guy, Alfred Rosenberg, was... Uh, He's like, oh yeah, you know you're about to Aryan. By the time Wheeler had excavated the site in the 1940s, people had already been breathing into these theories with the air of the times for well over 50 years. So by the time like the Mojandara was like being excavated, people were already convinced that there was like this Aryan race from Europe that went into the subcontinent. Hence why they think Hinduism has roots in Aryan. In Aryan. And this is the reason why the swastika was taken by Alfred Rosenberg. Uh, and being adopted as his symbol, you know, because he thinks that this belongs to them. Yeah. So it would be decades before most scholars realize that, like, this theory is kind of bullshit. And racist. Yeah. Uh, J.P. Mallory wrote, as ethnic de- designation of the word Aryan is most properly limited to those of the Indo-Iranians. So the, pro- the thing is, he said that the early Iranians identified themselves as Aryan, and the term Aryan means noble. Or free yeah. or civilized. So this is what the rich Iranians would call themselves Aryan. Mm-hmm. It was not a the race thing. Yeah. It was just a class thing. Yeah. Uh, and the term continued in use for 2,000 years until it was corrupted by European racists, such as Alfred Rosenberg, to serve their own agenda. Of course. <laughs> it's like throwing a cool word. Yeah. The Aryan invasion theory, though still cited and advanced through by those racialist agenda, lost credence in the 1960s. So by the 1960s, people were like, you know what? This is not... A convincing theory. Uh, George F. Dales, an American archaeologist, also reviewed Wheeler's interpretation and visited the site and said there was no evidence to support it. The skeletons Wheeler had interpreted as dying a violent death in battle show no sign of being attacked. attacked. Nor did the cities exhibit any damage associated with war. Mm -hmm. So what are we left with? Theory number two, natural disasters. Uh, so natural disasters tend to include stuff like earthquakes, we said, tornadoes, volcano eruptions. But also we need to take into consideration that 
that rivers change its course, yeah. which tends to happen sometimes due to Especially some... Especially multiple thousands of years. It's yeah. not like uh, overnight. There's one thing I remember when I was reading this, how like I remember studying in geography, like a river would go somewhere and then over years, it's you'd find that it had shifted and this, its route. And this empire was dependent on, on that, that river. river yeah. So what usually tends to happen is that so the Indus River changed and its tributaries were triggered by tectonic activity at the, at the Himalaya Mountains. And this could have caused the disappearance of such as like the Sarawasti River and perhaps caused prolonged flooding on the Indus Valley and this, uh, on the Indus and salination of the fields. Right? Just the crops aren't growing as yeah. they used to. Yeah. Or a place could get too much water yeah. and the crops just die because there's too much water. They're hungry and they're like, we got to move. Yeah. This would result in the decline of trade along the river as well. Yeah. Uh, this would also result in water-related diseases such as malaria and cholera. Could be that, yep. That Even earthquakes were considered since there's evidence of seismic activity in the Gujarat region. But with most cases, it could be a combination of both factors and probably like, or a combination of human and environmental factors. So probably it was a decline that was something gradual instead of an immediate end. Other theories were pronounced with hydrological changes, Floods, diseases might have played a part. So there might be deforestation, which could have been caused by brick making and copper smelting. So for you to make bricks and to, for you to smelt copper, you need high amount of fuel. You need fires to reach such a like global warming. So you cut you cut down woods mm. and you take it off. So it could have caused deforestation. Could be even by the irrigation system caused some kind of mess up. Maybe with the natural flow of things. Maybe so that like might. Where you build a pipe in a wrong place, literally, you know. So another theory that was thrown out too was that because there was no central authority, or there were increasing rejection of central authority, people just decide to bounce. Maybe at some point a guy became tried to become ruler, and everyone left. Could, Could be. have been migration. Just people wanted to leave. Uh, foreigners from the northwest crowded the cities too much or no military it just ceased to be yeah they could have just continued their life as a family in india they didn't care like they didn't call themselves the indus valley people maybe we're just a crew of people moving together yeah but why would they build a city so intricate and just move true it must have been famine Um, they didn't even try i don't know they probably did when it comes to human factors on the environment we don't have really much like i said making fuel and smelting copper but a lot of people complete like they say that not a lot would have caused, like, you're talking about a huge amount of number to cause deforestation or, yeah, or I'm, climate change. It must have been famine. So another second human factor we need to consider is that the industry with Mesopotamia and started to tail off by the 2000 BC, okay? So for some reason, Mesopotamia stopped trading with the Indus Valley. And though it probably did not cease for another century or two, but... However, the reason is never known, like why trade stopped, but we just know that trades just started to stop. Now, the yeah, theory it must be that Indus didn't have enough resources to the trade. The theory is because uh, the rise of the Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi in the first half of the 18th century BCE, the empire decided to focus more with Anatolia and Levant, trading with the east, with the west, sorry. Not the east. Yeah. And not the east. And this allowed to the virtual collapse of the Persian Gulf trading network, which also included Oman. And this could have affected the Indus Valley and the cities that were organizing trade. And in other words, the decline of the Indus Mesopotamia trade might have helped to cause the decline of the Indus civilization or may have been caused by it. Mm-hmm. You never know. Maybe the maybe the only reason they stopped trading is because the city was already in decline. decline yeah. In Harappa and Mahjandaro, the early excavators found distinct signs of deterioration in the conditions of the houses, the drainage, and the urban existence. Uh, in Mahjandaro, the huts were poorly constructed, the ones after the city started declining, and they were made out of broken bricks. So people tried to make cities out of broken bricks. Uh, kilns were built in the middle of the street. Some bodies were left unburied. 
We live famously took to be victims of massacre by invaders, but moreover, they just seem like to be people who were just buried poorly. Painted pottery largely gave way to plain pottery. So what was painted was with time just became plain. They stopped painting on pottery. Uh, they stopped using inscribed seals, so there were no more animals on seals. Uh, the excavators concluded that these cities have been just abandoned, and this would be also true in other parts of the Indus area. Excavations at many of the sites in the 1950s, including first investigation at Harappa, have shown this picture of abandon, universal abandonment to be fictitious. They said that there was a decline in the major cities, undoubtedly occurred, yet even in the cities, it wasn't sudden or uniform. Harappa was inhabited until the 1300 BCE. It was on a lower rate compared to that. So a lot of people just left and bounced and left. That's uh, gradual, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. In the southern regions of the Indus, so we're talking about places such as Kutch and Gujarat, the picture is decidedly mixed. At some sites, there were clear breakdowns of settlements followed by abandonment of the site, and others, there was a continuous settlement based on transformation. Even the seals in these other villages that were once inscribed started to disappear. Uh, to seals that were bearing nothing at all. But there were some signs of ge geometrical shapes, such as the swastika. That was the only things that were left. Uh, Harappa, by the 1700 BCE, had no seals at all. Uh, and the indescript seems to have continued for a while, but it starts to fade away. And for about 1,500 years, there has been no evidence of any writing in the Indian subcontinent. So once after 1700 BCE, they stop writing. The writing would slow down, and then for 1,500 years, there'll be no more writing up until the rise of, I guess, Hindustan or Hinduism. Uh, the disappearance, to quote, the disappearance of the writing at the end of the Indus tradition in the north can possibly be correlated to an increase in the dom dominance of the Vedic ritual elite, the Brahmis. Okay, notes, Kenyor. Uh, this, this brings up an interesting fact of the rise of the caste of men in India, you know, the caste system. Mm -hmm who pride themselves on the worship of words. The, the explanation of the disappearance has to do with these Brahmis re uh, revered for the power of their memory rather than writing. So they're saying that like this, there's a class of Hindu Brahmis who are like the top of the caste system. And they're top because of their, they know the sacred language, they know sacred words. So they say that this could have started because of the loss of the Indus Valley. So people who memorize the language were considered, were considered like, oh, okay, these, these guys have to like, be Like uh, the Hindu caste system are descendants of the Indus. Or that Indus. mentality of the Indus where the sacred text is important. It could be a mix, like the Indus people there mixed with the Hindu and they were considered the creme de la creme of exactly, yeah. the region. So the Brahmin priests are, take pride in reciting scriptures from memory than reading it from script manuscript sources. Mm -hmm. the, for the Indus area after 900, 1900 BC, the evidence is unfortunately infinitely less than... Uh, then say like the Eastern Mediterranean. So for example, like when we did the Bronze Age, we know there was floods, we know there were diseases, mm. earthquakes, trade disruptions, foreign immigration, aliens attacking them in the Everything. form of the sea peoples. All at one shot. <laughs> it was just banger after non banger stop, after banger. Yeah. <laughs> and the diminished central authority unsupported by military, you know? Kind of, so we look at this and then we look at the Indus Valley and we don't know what exactly happened for sure. So... That was the problem. Like, okay, you have like 1,900 BC, the civilization stopped. The civilization by then has been like 600 years in decline. Mm. You know what I mean? And the thing is, no one, like imagine, no one really knows definitively why. Had well, been. Who they are. I'm, not, I'm sure like a lot of people in the West didn't even know who they were, you know? Yeah. Um, if I had to take a guess, to be honest, I think it, will, it might be do like, it might do with like earthquake, 
or tectonic shifts shifting the movements of rivers, which eventually caused them to say, okay, we can't have rivers here. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Let's, Let's move, move to India. Um, I think that's a big part of Agreed. it. Agreed. But hopefully in the future, we could find a solution to this or like... Uh, Get more info. Yeah. So the final part, what's the impact of the Indus Valley people? Of course, the first thing we... The first... The first... <laughs> the first thing we need first. to... The first thing we need to talk about is its influence on Hinduism. So the Gujarat villages are Hindus. They've been practicing for a long time. They're called village Hinduism. Typically, they consist of a mother goddess as a guardian deity of the village and her husband or servant symbolized usually as a bull or a buffalo we're looking after. Uh, and usually it's made out of a form of clay or stone images in the cult. So these, uh, so very yeah, likely... Very they, remnants from Indus, yeah. Exactly. And these seems like it's Gujarati villagers have been doing it for thousands of years, especially given that bull, buffalo, peacocks, and fish and fig trees are big and the seals for them, uh, which example are important motifs for the Indus pottery painting. So maybe in time they became sacred animals. Yep. Marshall would begin to sense the root of Hinduism in the civilization. In the Indus civilization, as we know, so has almost every sub, uh, subsequent uh, researchers. He says, I do not suggest that Hinduism in its modern form was present in the Indus civilization, but some major elements of Hindu belief system seem to be present in the in, in this finds, writes a, a researcher named Sharka Bharati. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing the name wrong. It is possible to trace some major elements of the la- later Indian religions, especially in their devotional aspects, such as goddess worship, tree worship, and reverence of certain animals back to the Indus Valley or Indus civilization. Mm, with, their, with the art that they had on mm-hmm. the clay, yeah. But there's no, but there's not much clarity on exactly which aspects of civilization, especially the urban civilization, can be largely considered to be Hindu. Mm. Definite modern survivors of ancient civilization, including the swastika, survived. The Hindu female customs survived. Other things have survived from the Indus Valley, such as applying vermilion paste on hair, which has been found. Uh, it's kind of like dye. Also, they found uh, hollow uh, decorated Indus Valley shells, hostels, even smaller water jars used for washing and use of toilets, named as lota. So these people moved with their technology. It seems like, or some form, as for dead humans, um, but the difference is, for example, you know, in Hindu, you cremate, in this valley, they buried. Mm. So there's still that contradiction, right? Yeah. Other uh, comparisons raise questions also like, in what defines Hinduism, you know, is it uh, ethnicity, social custom, religious rituals, right? Uh, the word Hindu comes from the word uh, Sindhu, which it means river. And they came from the river. And it valley. comes from the Indus Ravi, river, right? Interesting, the yeah. Persians, so it comes from the Persian word Sindhu. Mm-hmm. Darius the Great, is what he, that's what he called the Indus Valley when he found it. And the Indus are known for the river. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the river. <laughs> And the area now known as Sindh is also a part of the in this region. Ptolemy, with also in his pioneering map of the world, created uh, in the second century AD, when he approached India, he marked it as Industina Regio, which Latin means region of Hindustan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Arabs who conquered Sindh in the eighth century uh, gradually extended the na- meaning of the name from uh, Sindh to Hindustan. Okay, and then they went from. Hindustan to India. People in the Indus civilization also achieved great accuracy. In, like one of the things that impacted the world was their measuring techniques. One of the first civilizations to develop, to develop a uniform system for weights and measures. Mm-hmm. That's all we know. I mean, like you can't really, what's the impact of a lost civilization, right? But what we could know or what it helps us to provide or its impact for us today is that 
the civilization provides an important insight into the relationships between civilized civilization collapse, violence, and disease. Mm-hmm. Global bodies and governmental organizations seeking to make predictions about global warming in contemporary contexts have essentialized the relationship between climate change, environmental migration, and violence. So we all know that one of the biggest problems with climate change is refugee crisis. Yeah, uh, A lot of people are going to suffer and, and they're going to start moving. Mm-hmm. And... We've seen in history what happens when they do. Yep. Civilizations eventually either get lost or war starts to break out. Yep. Um, this is one thing we learn from lost civilizations, especially when you find out why. Agreed. We also know that the evidence of the Harpin demonstrates that there was a very little interpersonal violence in the urban period at the Harpa. There was no violence between them. And despite centuries of migration, climate, social, political, and economic change, there was never a moment of dramatic increase of violence. It seemed like a peaceful society for the most transition part. as well. So this is something else we could look at, you know what I mean? Uh, furthermore, while the interpersonal violence and infectious disease were part of urban experience of collapse, the rural areas were pretty much fine. Um, they demonstrated that they were able to survive for the most part or to a certain extent. Uh, but, they would have, but they eventually suffered from food shortages and high infant mortality. So it shows you that they were all codependent mm-hmm. with one another. In, like Violence and disease were not, were not inevitable con- consequences of climate and other changes, but instead they were products of a particular and social historical circumstance, which created social inequality and left segments of society more vulnerable in later periods. Mm-hmm. This is important because governments today try to organize the idea that climate change will lead to environmental refugees, as we said, and that if human nature is inherently violent, we will eventually turn on each other. Yeah, and I think this is one thing we like. I think this is what appeals to lost civilizations. It's always this wonder if we are... What would the future think of us? You know, we always talk about that. What would the future... You could look at it now. We already kind of do it. We'll be like, remember, you know, Libya used to have this and that before the war. You know, Mm. Syria used to have this and that before the, this, you know, the civil, the revolution and all that. So we're already seeing collapse of civilizations happening right now before our eyes, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and... Well, like our parents already tell us, you know, 20 years ago, Iraq used to have this system, this system, this system, and now it's not there anymore ever since the American invasion. Mm. So we we are saying this now. And that's like, so imagine now 200 years time when they bring up rubbles of war-torn places. And like, you know, this area was once rich with buildings and televisions and that. And it'll be like, whoa, really? It, it goes to show you like in 5,000 years time. Yeah, yeah exactly. How will... How will the landscape of the earth look like? Not just that. It also makes you feel insignificant. It does. These people lived lived for thousands of years and just had a perfectly run system that matches or even better than some systems in modern society, right? Like their sewage system and all that, drainage and all that, yeah? (laughs) They had a trade system. They had art. They had this. They had that. And here we are saying, we don't really know what happened to them. They just lost, gone. And it shows you like... We're just a bl- and by the way, global warming, climate changes happen, and it seems to have happened many times. So us thinking that it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. It is inevitable, but like, it's not the end of the human race, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's the end of our civilization. But doesn't it mean it's the end. Yeah, it kind of like when we did with the Bronze Age, when you said that it was the end of that era, but what came from it? And similarly, we're probably gonna be lumped into like. 2000 years worth of stuff yeah which is what's scary as well all this advances we're doing will be like someone's going to be doing 
some some form of a pasta and be like and in that period they had a radio a tv and a thing to us that seems so far apart and the internet and the internet this was all done in succession to show the speed of their technology that's it or not even that they did the printing press that and that and that they're gonna lump all this technological advance that we see so fast in like or sentence. So they're going to say, so you're going to tell me Obama and Alfred Rosenberg were in the same civilization? Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> like the, all the American presidents will be just summed up in a paragraph. Crazy. Like so. literally like how we're doing this and it's like in an hour and, and we're, change. We're talking about thousands of years. In of, an hour. Of intricate system that probably took, what took thousands of years to build. And we're just like, uh, and here's some cool clay pictures of them. Yeah, and uh, crazy, they got lost to time, yeah, huh? Yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it goes back to showing like what we talked about in the Bronze Age, what we talked about with the Huns, what we talked about with environment. You're, the environment destroys you more than anything. We always think that, we always have this notion that the human, our civilization is going to end by a nuclear holocaust. There's always like, oh, a nuclear bomb, a nuclear war is going to happen, you know? We're going to all get destroyed by bombs. Brother, for the most part, brother, uh, for the most part, it's most likely the environment. It's yeah. always been like the, the environment. environment has always been the bigger some major. seismic change, and it's done. And it's done, and then it's gonna gradually lead to so much a series of events that won't happen in our lifetime or our kids' lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, and then the next thing you know, two people are gonna be sitting in a spaceship, and like that's so the only thing. Yeah. Today's episode, we'll be talking about the two thousand, the, the Earth era, <laughs> the two thousand and thirty, uh, two thousand trends. 2010s. I was like, whoa, man, that's so long ago. I'd be like, they don't know if it was 1950 or 2010. <laughs> yeah. But something happened in those 60s. They went to the moon, but rumor has it it yeah, was in the 1950s. I think it was like, I think it was like 2001. And some guy directed it. And it was yeah. apes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to mix 2001 Space Odyssey with the moon. They landing. turned it into a movie called Plant of the Apes. No, no, no. You're talking about 2001 Space, Space Odyssey. Odyssey. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. And here's a video to show the evidence of it. Yeah. This this is a documentary of their their voyage to the moon to space. <laughs> it's the last the last third of two thousand one. Yeah. Him here's them in the moon. This is Buzz Aldrin. This is their grandparents, the ape. Yeah. yeah. Like, this, that's Buzz Aldrin, yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, Hal uh must have been some kind of leader, you know. Yeah. So so you're saying they predicted how like they had their own Alexa back in the or whatever is Alexa four thousand. They named it HAL 3000. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's how they're going to they're gonna find all these cassettes and movies and they're going to be like, wait a minute, this guy shows up in a lot of these videos. Yeah. And he must have been some kind of leader. <laughs> Maybe. Like, yeah, somehow <laughs> Will, it's like, Will Smith was a world leader who fought <laughs> off aliens <laughs> and Chris slavery. Rock. <laughs> Chris Rock is the biggest antagonist. Well, Will Smith fought off aliens, slavery. Maybe. He was in the Wild West. Uh, he had a doppelganger. <laughs> yeah. He was a boxer. He was he was a father yeah, looking for yeah, job, yeah. work, myth, mythical creature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Anyways, aim. So call. let's wrap it up. Do your call to arms. My call to arms. Yeah. So before we do that, the next one is going to be about conspiracy theory. The history of a conspiracy theory. No one wants that. No one wants that. No. Okay. Yeah, so the next episode, guys, will be about the history of a conspiracy theory where we're going to take a conspiracy theory, look at its origin, try to break down how this conspiracy theory works, why do people believe in it, and what can we learn about buying into such conspiracies. Fair enough, Aim? Yep. I think that's all for today. Thank you guys for listening to our episode on the Indus Valley. 
I honestly found it fascinating as hell, and I'm pretty sure Eamon has by looking at all the yeah, pottery. Yeah, agreed, yeah. You um, couldn't help but stare at all the artwork. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, guys, so let us know what you thought about the Indus Valley civilization. What do you think about other lost civilizations? Which other lost civilizations do you think we should cover next? You could send us this on, usually on Instagram. I think that's where we're most active. active. TikTok, too. Those are the two most platforms we're active on because, you know, we're young and hip. Uh, Facebook's for boomers. And Twitter is uh, is a hellhound of a mess. And yeah, so check us out. We're at the convo underscore BTWE for both uh, applications. So this is all. So thank you guys again and have a good night. And thank you to everyone who listened to our Lisbon episode before. Hope um, you were able to donate to the uh, people in Syria and Turkey. Anyway, thank you guys and have a good night. Take care. I know it sounds crazy.